known as the weeping prophet. He uh, serves during the time of the divided kingdom of Israel and is primarily dealing uh, with the two tribes of Judah, uh, the, the uh, southern kingdom that had split off. And uh, he, that's where most of his uh, ministry is. If you'll remember, the ten tribes of the northern kingdom uh, were uh, have, uh, being overrun by the Assyrians, and they were more wicked uh, than Judah, at least for a longer period of time. They were more rapid to go into sin and idolatry than Judah was. Uh, Judah had a few more kings that were good kings that helped lead them and bring them back out of idolatry a number of times. And I think because of that reason, God prolonged his judgment on Judah. But as we get to the book of Jeremiah, we kind of find the final days uh, of the nation of Judah, the southern kingdom, just before God brings final judgment on them for their sin and departing from uh, the uh, idols, uh, from God to the idols uh, that they had been serving. And they actually get to a point, there's uh, Jeremiah, the book of Jeremiah and his ministry covers uh, four different kings uh, of Judah. One of them under Josiah, who was the last good king of Judah. Uh, he begins his reign under him, a young king. And uh, they were good friends. And uh, things went well with them. Then he was followed by three very wicked kings. And uh, those wicked kings uh, were kind of the last downfall of uh, Judah. And uh, so, um, really, Jeremiah is uh, written to primarily to Judah. Uh, there are sections of it that are written to the Gentile nations as well. God gives some prophecy for them. And we'll talk a little bit about that here in just a little bit. Jeremiah is known as Judah's greatest prophet. If you look at historical records, talk to Jews about their history, they would refer to Jeremiah as the greatest uh, prophet uh, of uh, Judah. And uh, because of his heart, for the country. If you take your Bible, look in Jeremiah chapter number 9 for a moment. I just want you to, to as we read these verses, I want you to kind of uh, understand the heart of Jeremiah. Um, this, this is a man who not only is willing to be used of the Lord, <clears throat> but has a heart for his country and uh, for his fellow man. Look in uh, Jeremiah chapter number 9 and verse number 1. He begins with the expression, oh, and anytime we see that in Scripture, uh, there is a, a, an agonizing of spirit, or there is an exclamation of wonder. There is a great intensity of emotion involved in that little word. And it says, Oh, that my head were waters, and mine eyes as fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. And uh, Jeremiah had gotten to the point numerous times, several times in this book, where he had a desire because of uh, Judah's rejection uh, of the prophe prophecies. Um, he wanted to quit. He wanted to resign. And uh, before you're too critical of Jeremiah for that, you need to understand he had a lot of opposition, uh, more than most of us would think of. Um, there was uh, another prophet, so-called, in Judah that claimed to be a prophet of God who was a false prophet. And uh, he, he ridiculed Jeremiah. He uh, belittled him. He humiliated him in the eyes of the people and actually had him at one time thrown into a cistern and uh, trying to kill him and uh, threaten his life numerous times. 
And Jeremiah, because of the hardness of the hearts of Judah and their, their decision not to listen to the word of the Lord, uh, a number of times tried to get to the place where he said, I'm not going to do it anymore. I'm not going to, Lord, you're going to find somebody else. And uh, there, there's a very uh, familiar passage in Jeremiah that we speak of uh, rather often where he says, I'll speak no more in his name. And he said, but it was shut up in my, uh, my heart, like, uh, in my bones, uh, like a fire. And it was a consuming fire that just had to get out, and he had to speak it. And um, he had a very strong passion, zeal, heart, not only to obey the Lord, but also a burden for his people. Look with me in Jeremiah chapter 13, and let's look in verse number 17. And again, as we read it, you'll kind of hear a little bit uh, of the heart that he had. In verse number 17, chapter 13, he says, But if you will not hear it, my soul shall weep in secret places for your pride. And mine eyes shall weep sore and run down with tears, because the Lord's flock is carried away captive. And so not only is his heart broken for the message of God, but it is broken because of the rejection of his people to the message of God. And by the way, it would do us well as God's people to be broken hearted. We are often critical of the rejection this world has towards the things of God. But it would do us well from time to time to be broken hearted over it, to weep for it. These are people whose souls will spend someplace, uh, be someplace for an eternity. And uh, there needs to be a recognition of that. I think more so in the day that we live than ever before, because we see a lot of rejection of God's Word. I shared with you a couple of weeks ago uh, the indications, things I'd seen. And then I even read an article this week uh, by, written by someone that was along the same theory and the same lines of, we don't really care anymore what the Bible says. And they were making that argument that the Bible is just a, a fairy tale, it's just a book, and we don't care what it says. All these people that are coming out and saying, well, the Bible says this, so we better have this law in the land. And people are saying, we don't, we don't care what the Bible says. We don't think our law should be based on Christianity and its teachings. The truth is, down through history, this book has always been the foundation for the moral of mankind, morals of mankind. It's always been the source that, that men would come back to and make their laws, their moral laws of society, uh, revolve around the basis of the things that are taught in this book. And we're now in a generation where we live in a country where the majority, the quickly becoming the, the, the strong majority of people in our country that say we don't care what the Bible says. And if anything, we need to be brokenhearted of that. We need to spend time weeping and uh, pleading with God and praying that God would work in the hearts of the people of our country, beginning with our leaders and on down. Uh, I, I know the day that we live, it is tempting to just be critical, and that's all to be very vocal about how we disagree with them. And I think we need to be. I think we need to speak up and let our voice be heard. I think we need to vote according to the, what the Bible teaches us and our conscience would dictate. Uh, and vote by Bible principle, not because of what team you're on. And uh, vote for the best person that would follow uh, the things most closely to Scripture. And I think these are things that ought to underlie these things. But above all, I think we need to be brokenhearted for it. And we need to be in prayer for it. And Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet because of his heart for his people, their rejection of it. And yes, he's very bold. Uh, he proclaims the Word of God without apology and suffers a lot of ridicule, a lot of persecution as a result of it. 
Um, and uh, let's look in Jeremiah chapter number 3. And uh, we're going to see kind of at the onset of this book the condition that Judah finds itself in. Uh, Jeremiah chapter number 3. And uh, let's look down in uh, verse number 11. Now this is under the first king, Josiah, the good king, uh, the last good king of Judah. It was during his reign that this is written. <clears throat> but in chapter number uh, 3, verse number 11, the Bible says, And the Lord said unto me, The backsliding Israel hath justified herself more than treacherous Judah. And so it talks about Israel being backsliding, but they have more justification for their backsliding than Judah does with their treacherousness. And um, that Judah at this point had already become worse than the northern kingdom of Israel. Now, Israel had been in idolatry and a backsliding state longer, but Judah's treacherousness had actually exceeded that of Israel. And as a result, uh, Jeremiah begins to speak of the impending uh, judgment that God was going to bring, and he uses uh, Babylon. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar, who is the, uh, the ruler of Babylon during that time, has already, about 605 B.C., uh, he's already uh, conquered Nineveh. Uh, Nineveh was the capital of uh, the uh, Assyria and the, the folks that had already brought the northern kingdom under subjection and had them in captivity. Nebuchadnezzar had already defeated their capital city. Now, he had not completely overthrown the Assyrians, but had uh, a strong leverage and, and foothold uh, in, in that area. And... Uh, uh, was quickly becoming a, a world power. Um, at the end of Josiah's reign, uh, a pharaoh in Egypt comes down and uh, puts Judah under tribute. Now, they're not fully, I wouldn't, we wouldn't call it necessarily a captivity, but they pay a tax to him. And uh, it's not very long after that, uh, in the second king that Jeremiah serves under, uh, that the, uh, Nebuchadnezzar comes and overthrows the Egyptian uh, empire. And Babylon at that point is known as a world empire. They have now exceeded uh, the power. They were the, the, the world power at the time and had uh, conquered most of the other countries around. And uh, so they come in and they... Uh, set siege to Jerusalem. We know that there were three different times that Babylon does this, uh, about ten years apart or so each. And the first time, he takes uh, some fellows into captivity that you probably have heard of before, and that would be Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They all went in that first captivity. So this is the time period, if you can kind of get your mind wrapped around the setting and the time period uh, of when this book is, is written. Uh, he is contemporary to... Uh, Daniel, uh, he's contemporary to Zephaniah, he's, uh, I'm sorry, Zechariah. He's contemporary with uh, Habakkuk uh, and uh, those group of folks during that time of captivity. And so, again, you can kind of uh, read about those. Uh, Ezekiel would have been a contemporary um, during that time as well. And so if you uh, read the Old Testament, uh, it helps sometimes to read those books 
at the same time that you read Jeremiah because it gives you a little better sense of the timing, the setting, the culture, the uh, historical events that are surrounding it at the time where uh, the nations of Israel and Judah are spiritually uh, at that time where they are in their history. The book is divided primarily into four sections. Uh, the first section is just chapter 1 all by itself, and that deals with God calling Jeremiah uh, to be a prophet, and uh, he puts a calling on him. The second uh, section is uh, a, a grouping of prophecies that God gives Jeremiah to uh, Judah specifically, to the, to the nation of Judah. Um, and that is found in chapters 2 through chapter 45. And then from 46 to 51, we find prophecies that are given generally to the Gentile nations that are surrounding them and uh, that God had given a word for them. Chapter 52 is the final chapter. It is the only chapter that we do not believe Jeremiah himself wrote. Um, It's interesting because uh, Jeremiah wrote chapters 1 through 51, but... um, he more than likely, <clears throat> excuse me, did not pen uh, with his own hand. He dictated it uh, from what most most people believe. He dictated it to uh, his servant Barak uh, or Baruch, depending on how you want to pronounce it. It's different people pronounce it different ways. Uh, and we believe that probably chapter 52 was uh, tacked onto the end of that by his servant and was uh, from him and rather than Jeremiah. Uh, Jeremiah was the son of Hilkiah, who was a priest at the time, and he lived about two miles just outside of the city of Jerusalem. So he's in the middle of um, things that are going on religiously uh, in Judah. He's certainly within contact of the capital city and the kingdoms and the kings. Um, He was not allowed to marry. This is an interesting thing. Look with me in Jeremiah chapter 16. Jeremiah chapter number 16, God did not allow Jeremiah to be married. Um, Look in verse number 1. The word of the Lord came also unto me, saying, Thou shalt not take thee a wife, neither shalt shalt thou have sons or daughters in this place. For thus saith the Lord concerning the sons and concerning the daughters that are born in this place, and concerning their mothers that bear them, and concerning their fathers that begat them in the land. And he gives a prophecy to Judah that is illustrated by the fact that he was not allowed to take a wife. And so it's a very interesting thing. If you get a chance to read through, God is using it kind of, if you, if you want to look at it this way, as an object lesson for Judah to help illustrate it. Uh, by the way, God, God does this oftentimes through the Old Testament. Uh, I think one of the, one of the most uh, amazing instances of this is the uh, prophet Hosea, uh, Hosea. Uh, who was told to go and marry uh, a woman that uh, was uh, loose and had committed adulteries and fornications. And um, he marries her, and then she goes off and uh, gives herself to, the Bible recalls it, into whoredoms. Uh, She, through that, is sold into slavery. And God tells Hosea to go back and buy her at the auction block. And her name was Gomer. uh, We often... Remember that because he gave a homer uh, of uh, barley, which was a measurement, and we talk about it being a homer for Gomer, and uh, he buys Gomer back. And the lesson to be taught to Israel is, even though they are not faithful to God, God is always faithful to them. And His love is not dependent 
upon their love for Him, but it's dependent upon His love for them. And by the way, that is true in our lives. Aren't we glad for that? If His love was dependent upon our love for Him, there would be times God wouldn't love us a whole lot. I'm thankful that His love is not dependent upon my love for Him. His love is dependent upon His love for me. And what a great, great truth is shown oftentimes by these object lessons that God gives. Um, Daniel and Ecclesiastes uh, both give reference in the Old Testament to Jeremiah being the author of the book. There are also some secular sources such as the uh, historian Josephus who refers to Jeremiah being the author. And then the uh, Jewish Talmud also uh, gives indication, gives credit to the book being written by Jeremiah. There are some New Testament uh, illustrations of this where the New Testament writers also attributed things uh, to Jeremiah specifically. Uh, hold your place here in Jeremiah. We're going to be back to it in just a minute, but let's look in Matthew chapter number 2. I'm just going to, there's several of these. I'm just going to show you two or three of them. Matthew chapter number 2. <coughs> Excuse me. And we'll look in verse number 17. Matthew chapter 2 and uh, verse number 17. Then was fulfilled that which was spoken by Jeremy the prophet, saying, In Ramah was there a voice heard, lamentation and weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and would not be comforted because they are not. Now that's a direct quote that, or a, a quote that Matthew is referring to from uh, one of Jeremiah's prophecies. Now look back in Jeremiah chapter 31. We'll see where Jeremiah prophesied this. Jeremiah chapter 31. And let's look in verse number 15. Jeremiah chapter 31, verse number 15. Thus saith the Lord, a voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel, weeping for her children, refused to be comforted for her children because they were not. And so, again, we have multiple, and I've got more in the notes here we'll make available to you. Uh, at least six or seven different instances in the New Testament where they are directly quoting from the book of Jeremiah and saying that these are the words of Jeremiah. So they're giving uh, uh, internal proofs from Scripture that, yes, he was the author of this book. And so we strongly believe that he was. There is some indication that possibly chapter 52 was not written by him. If some people uh, say, no, I think that he did write 52, it's not worth arguing over, and I wouldn't argue the point. Uh, but we pretty well know that Jeremiah was the author, the human one that was used to pen uh, these words. Jeremiah's ministry lasted from about 627 to 8, uh, 580 B.C. <clears throat> uh, let's see here. I already covered some of this stuff. All right, let's look at the Christ of Jeremiah. The Christ of Jeremiah. Uh, let's look in chapter 23. And uh, verse number 1, chapter 23, Christ is vividly, probably more so than, uh, I, would, I wouldn't say more so than Isaiah, but I would say at least as clearly as Isaiah speaks of Christ, Jeremiah is, is right next to it. He is very, very clear about this. Uh, chapter 23, and let's look in verse number 8, uh, we're, I'm sorry, verse number 1, we're going to read down through verse number 8. Jeremiah chapter 23 Woe be unto the pastors that destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, saith the Lord. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God of Israel against the pastors that feed my people, ye have scattered my flock and have driven them away, 
and have not visited them, behold, I will visit upon you the evil of your doings, saith the Lord. And I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all countries whither I have driven them, and I will bring them again to their folds, and they shall be fruitful and increase. And I will set up shepherds over them, which shall feed them, and shall fear no more, nor be dismayed, neither shall they be lacking, saith the Lord. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will raise unto David a righteous branch. And in your King James Bible, the word branch here ought to be capitalized in reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. He's referred to here as a righteous branch, and a king, also capitalized, shall reign and prosper, and shall execute judgment and justice in the earth. And in his days Judah shall be saved, and Israel shall dwell safely. And this is his name, whereby he shall be called the Lord our righteousness. Therefore, behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that they shall no more say, The Lord liveth, which brought up the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. But the Lord liveth, which brought up and which led the seed of the house of Israel out of the north country, and from all countries whither I had driven them, and they shall dwell in their own land. And so again, speaking of the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ is going to one, once again uh, gather the nation of Israel together. And so a great picture of Him here in this particular passage. Let's look also in chapter 31. Chapter number 31, and we'll spend uh, probably about uh, a good part of the rest of our time in dealing with this part of it. Jeremiah chapter 31. <clears throat> And uh, let's look in verse number 31. Jeremiah chapter 31 and verse number 31. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they break, although I was an husband unto them, saith the Lord. And... Uh, so I want us to take a look here at... Uh, oh, I'm sorry, let me read a couple more verses down. Um, but this shall be the covenant which I will make, uh, that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my law in their inward parts and write in their, heart, in, in their hearts and will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and will remember their sin no more." And so we talk here, or Jeremiah prophesies here, about the coming of a new covenant. Now, it is fulfilled numerous times in the New Testament, or referred to at least as being fulfilled uh, numerous times in the, um, in the New Testament. Take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter number 8. Hebrews chapter number 8. This idea of the new covenant that is prophesied all the way back 600 years before Christ, 580-some years before Christ. Hebrews chapter number 8, and let's look in verse number... Uh, let's go down to verse number... Um, let's start in verse number 5. Uh, let's back up. Uh, I'm going to back up a little bit further. Uh, let's just start in verse 1, all right? Let's go back to Genesis 1. We're going to read from there. Let's go back to verse 1 because it just it really helps us get a little better gist of it. I was trying to save some time, but we really need to, to get all of it. Now of the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. 
We have such an high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary of the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched and not man. For every high priest is ordained to offer gifts and sacrifices. Wherefore, it is of necessity that this man have somewhat also to offer. For if he were on earth, he should not be a priest, seeing that there are priests that offer gifts according to the law, who serve under the example and shadow of heavenly things, as Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle. For see, saith he, that thou make all things according to the pattern shown to thee in the mount. So apparently Moses was able to see the tabernacle in heaven that God built and was able to pattern the tabernacle because of that. Verse 6, But now hath he obtained a more excellent ministry, by how much more also he is the mediator of a better covenant, which was established upon better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place should uh, should no place have been sought for the second. For finding fault with them, he saith, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. That is a direct response to the prophecy given in Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 34. This is the, the indication that this new covenant was fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. He was the establishment of it. Look in chapter number 9 and verse 1, just a few verses over. Then verily the first covenant had also... Still book of Hebrews, chapter 9. Then verily the first covenant had also ordinances of divine service and worldly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle made, the first, wherein was the candlestick, the table, and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. And after the second veil, the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer, the ark of the covenant, overlaid round about with gold, wherein was the golden pot that had manna, and Aaron's rod that budded, and the tables of the covenant, and over it the cherubims of glory, shadowing the mercy seat, of which we cannot now speak particularly. Now, when these things were thus ordained, the priest went always into the first tabernacle, accomplishing the service of God. But into the second went the high priest alone, once, every year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the errors of the people. The Holy Ghost this signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet manifest, while as the first tabernacle was yet standing, which was a figure for the time when present, in which were both offered, were offered both gifts and sacrifices, that could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience, which stood only in meats and drinks and diverse washings and cardinal ordinances imposed on them until the time of Reformation. But Christ being come a high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood. He entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of bulls and of goats and ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered him without spot, himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And for this cause, he is the mediator of the what? The New Testament. That by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. Man, what an amazing 
set of Scripture, isn't it? What an amazing work that Christ did. God's plan was perfect. I mean, perfect. Not one, not one ounce of His plan was out of sorts. It all lines up exact the way that He, he chose it. And He prophesied it 600 years before it ever happened. He had already told the nation of Israel these things. Look with me in Mark chapter number 14. Mark, the Gospel of Mark, chapter number 14. And let's look in verse number 24. <clears throat> the time of Passover is near, and Christ is <clears throat> having the Passover <clears throat> time. And let's look in verse number 24. He's having what we refer to as the Last Supper or the Lord's Supper. Notice what he says specifically here. He says, And he said unto them, This is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many. Verily I say unto you, I will drink no more of the fruit of the vine until the day that I drink it new in the kingdom of God. The, The old earthly tabernacle, the old earthly temple had to be done away with so that the atoning could be done in the heavens in the tabernacle that was built not by man's hands, but by God's hands. And when Christ died on Calvary, uh, the, the way into the holiest used to be through the veil of the temple that was known as the Holy of Holies, and only by the high priest, and only with a blood atonement for his own sin and for the sin of the people. And he had to do this every year. But when Christ died on Calvary, the Bible says that that veil was rent from top to bottom. And I can only imagine the look on the priest's faces as for the very first time ever they were able to gaze in and see the mercy seat. They were able to see the Holy of Holies and they had access to God's presence. For the first time since the Garden of Eden, a holy God and a sinful man were reconciled to each other. And we can come to Him any time and pray and talk with Him. Not because we deserve it, but because the Lord Jesus Christ, all the way back in the time of Jeremiah, prophesied there's going to come a time where I will establish a new covenant. And we'll do away with the old tabernacle. The only one that matters now is the new one. And His blood has been applied, the Bible says in the book of Hebrews, once for all. It doesn't have to be applied every year. It doesn't have to be applied every time we sin. It covers all of them. By the way, people say, well, what about my future sins? You realize that on Calvary, all of our sins were future. And they were still forgiven. They were still paid for. Look with me in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I'll just show one or two more verses of this, and then we'll move on. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse number 25. Paul is giving instruction to the church at Corinth regarding the Lord's Supper. And once again, in verse number 25, he says, After the same manner, also he took the cup which he had supped, when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as often as ye drink it in remembrance of me. I've shared with you many times before the process of making a covenant which was something God had given to man years before, many, many years, even before Abraham's time. 
the process of making a covenant with someone was already established and God had given it. It required a sacrifice. It required the shedding of blood of a sacrifice. And they would uh, do a number of things. They would exchange names. That's interesting, isn't it? We're called Christians today, aren't we? Pretty amazing. They exchanged garments. I took the old garment off the day I got saved and put on the garment of the Lord Jesus Christ. I wear His. By the way, it ought to be something we protect and guard with our testimony. They would exchange weapons belts indicating that they would be the defense for one another even to the point of death. Christ is our buckler and our shield and our high tower. He tells us to take unto us the whole armor of God. Aren't we glad of that? They would exchange, uh, uh, or they would cut. They would they would put a mark. Uh, they would cut the wrist or the hand, and they would take some of the dirt or some of the ashes from the offering that was given. They would rub it in there, and it would make a tattoo mark. It would heal over, and there would be a constant reminder. And from that day on, a man was known as a covenant man. And if anybody ever tried to mess with him, all he had to do was show that mark, and people would say, I don't want to mess with him, because if I do, the other guy that he's in covenant with will come to his defense and defend him. And everything that belonged to the one belonged now to the other. They had no his and his, and his or you know, mine and theirs. It was ours. Everything belonged together. And that's what took place in a covenant. They uh, would then, at the end of it, have a meal together. And in the meal, they would give each other to drink. They would, one would give the other to drink, the other would give them to drink. And by the way, we do a lot of this in our marriage ceremonies today, don't we? You wonder where some of these traditions came from. It was from the idea of making a covenant. They would then feed each other uh, from the covenant meal. They would each give to each other something to eat. And they would take care of them. And then they were to, from time to time, they were to meet again to have a covenant meal together. And to remember the covenant that they had made. This covenant meal was to be observed as a way of remembrance. The Lord's Supper is the meal of the first, or of the, of the new covenant. It is, the Jews understood this much better than maybe we do. But the Lord's Supper is not just an ordinance that God uh, created at the time of Calvary. This was something that was to be observed when a new covenant was made. It was to be used often to bring reminder to each of the participants of the covenant what they had promised each other. That's why it says that we're to examine ourselves when we come to the Lord's table. We're to spend time remembering the commitment that we make to God when we give our hearts and our lives and say, Lord, I want to trust You and not myself. We're reminded of what Christ did for us on Calvary by being the surety of that. To guarantee it for us that even when we do sin, He's the one that steps up and says, I've already paid it. It's already taken care of. When Satan, who is the accuser of the brethren, as we found out last Wednesday night, tries to accuse us before God the Father, Jesus says, I'll be the advocate, I'll be the intercessor, and I'll, I'll take the blame. You just put that on my account. And by the way, that account was already paid. 
So we have surety. We have a guarantee of that. By the way, uh, the book of Hebrews is probably one of the greatest books that teaches us that once we're saved, we're always saved. We are eternally secure in the Lord Jesus Christ. Our salvation was not dependent upon ourselves. Neither is keeping ourselves saved dependent upon ourselves, but is dependent upon Him. I want you to look at one last thing in Jeremiah, and we'll be done. Jeremiah chapter 7, and I know we're going just a minute over here, but I do want you to see these verses. These are to kind of give an idea. These are kind of some of the key verses uh, that kind of give an indication of uh, what Judah was doing, how God viewed it. Let's look in verse number 23. Jeremiah chapter 7, verse number 23. But this thing commanded I them, saying, Obey my voice, and I will be your God. And ye shall be my people, and walk ye in all the ways that I have commanded you, that it may be well unto you. By the way, that's the same agreement God asks of us when we get saved. To walk in His commandments and let Him be our God. And He commanded this to the, the, the nation of Judah. And notice what verse 24 says. But they hearkened not nor inclined their ear, but walked in the counsels and in the imagination of their evil heart and went backward, not forward. And it was at this point that God said, Judah, I've given you enough time. You've continued to do this. And He brings judgment and He brings captivity to them. And Jeremiah weeps for them. We will be studying the book of Lamentations as well. Jeremiah wrote that book. And it's a a book that records many of the sorrows of his heart and even the sorrows that God has towards the nation of Israel and their rejection of Him. And we'll look at that, Lord willing, uh, next week. Let's stand together and be dismissed in prayer. Father, we do thank You and pray that You'll uh, bless the teaching of Your Word to our hearts. Lord, so many things that stir us when we think about them, when we understand them and we see them clearly. We see the picture of it. We understand what it's for. And Lord, I pray that from time to time as we observe your uh, what we consider